Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international studies, produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of the International Studies Association, and made available through ISA's Professional Resource Center. I'm Jamie Free, Professor of Global Politics and Associate Provost at Bridgewater College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with an engaged and innovative teacher of global politics. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity by making sense of the choices we all make in service of our disciplinary identities as teacher-scholars and of the relationships we build with our students. Today's conversation is with Dr. Ralph Carter, Piper Professor of Political Science at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas in the United States. Ralph has received numerous awards for his teaching, including being named a Piper Professor of Texas and receiving TCU's Chancellor's Award for Distinguished Achievement as a Creative Teacher and Scholar. In 2012, Princeton named Ralph one of the best 300 professors in the United States. Our conversation explores how teaching with case studies can humanize practices of international relations and global politics that too often seem to students linear and inevitable. Methods for helping students engage their power as both analysts and decision makers inside the classroom and in ways that will serve them well beyond. And the role that happiness should play in the career and lifestyle choices we as scholars make. Oh, Ralph Carter, welcome to The Teaching Curve. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, you've got a very distinguished teaching career and I'm looking forward to hearing your insights and your wisdom. Well, thanks, Jamie. I appreciate it very much. The way we usually start these things, as you may know, Ralph, is for have, to have you talk a little bit about the people who make you a teacher, and those are your students. Can you talk about the students at TCU? Yeah. Um, I, as I tell job applicants, they're exceedingly polite. They're very smart. They're well-educated. Most of them come from private, uh, private, college, uh, private colleges, private schools, or upper income suburban public schools. So most of them have a very good academic uh, background. Um, but because of that background, they are overwhelmingly non-diverse, if you want to use that term. Uh, we have about 20 to 25% of our student body that would qualify in some way as diverse. And that's a challenge that we all have to work on um, as we prepare students for living in our society. So those students, in some ways, um, how do you adapt your own walking into a classroom and your syllabi and things to um, account for the kind of students that you have? Well, um, I think one of the things you do is you try to set your standards high. You try to, to be very clear about your expectations. Um, one of the things that, as I have matured in this field, I have learned that what they do in high schools is not what they did when I was in high school, and and uh, students are used to more contact with their teachers, and so I have to navigate that. Um, but I also have to be the one who, for things that are appropriate to discuss in my classes uh, that deal with more contentious or diverse topics, I, I'm the one who has to bring that up, and I have to show that I'm open to discussions about that. Um, and not in any way expect any students who might represent a marginalized community to be the standard bearer for that community in my class. They're welcome 
to chime in on those discussions if they want to. But, you know, if, if there are two sides to an issue, golly gee whiz, I've got to make sure that both of those sides are shown. And very often because of my students' backgrounds, they've only ever heard one side of an issue. Hmm. Um, all right, well, tell me a little bit about how um, you became a teacher. And, and I mean that in kind of both the practical sense of how you ended up at the kind of institution where teaching is valued and, and you spend a lot of time doing that, uh, but also kind of how you came in terms of your own identity and, and your image of yourself as somebody who, who teaches. I thought I was going to be a lawyer when I went to college. And uh, I quickly figured out that I personally found law not nearly as interesting as I found international politics. And I realized, you know what, you can make a living teaching this stuff at the college level. And so um, I had the great good fortune of having a wonderful undergraduate advisor who pulled me aside and said, okay, what are you gonna do? And I said, I wanna be a college professor like you. And he said, where are you gonna go to college? go get your graduate degrees. And I said, well, I'll stay here at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls and Texas and get my, my uh, master's, then maybe go to UT down in Austin. And he goes, no, you won't come with me. And he led me by the hand. And he said, you're too good for this. He said, um, where do you want to live and teach? And I said, back here in Texas, I'm a Texan. And he says, well, you got to leave the state. Otherwise you're going to be viewed as parochial. Uh, you, if you stay here in the state, you're going to be the most popular professor at Sol Ross State University, which was at that time the lowest paying state university in Texas. Uh, he said, you've got to leave. And he literally told me what schools to apply to. And I only later learned that he was telling me to apply to top 20 schools in international politics. And luckily, I got a, a full ride to go to Ohio State, where I got my master's and my PhD. Um, the Ohio State people realized I was probably more of a teacher than a scholar, and they put me up for a position at Middlebury College as I was leaving Ohio State, and I blew my top at that instructor who was in charge of, of graduate placements. I said, you did this without asking me, and he said, what's wrong with Middlebury College, and I said, where it's at. <laughs> I don't want to be in the cold anymore. I don't want to shovel snow anymore. I want to go back west and south. And so luckily I got a visiting assistant professor position at Wichita State University in Wichita, Kansas. And I was there for four years. And then I saw a visiting assistant professor position open up at TCU and I applied and got it. And luckily after a couple of years, it morphed into a tenure track appointment. And now I've been there 39 years. That's amazing. It's uh, it there. There's the same element that I see in people's stories all the time about that that part of it is deliberate and conscious, thoughtful choices. And some of it's just um, happenstance yeah. that you can't, you couldn't control. And, and it's nice to find people who rode that mix into the place where they really wanted to be and where they clearly belong. Let me, let me add this. If you really want to be happy, it's more than just what you do. It's where you live. And um, on the advice of a department chair at Wichita State at the time when I was out on the job market, I applied for a job at a university that I was not particularly interested in, in but they asked me to come interview. I knew within 30 minutes of arriving, I would never work there. 
Mm. And I turned down a tenure track position. And, and when people asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, I'll sell shoes in Dallas, Texas, before I take that job. Okay. And it was not an insult to the people who worked there. It was the location. And um, as a result, I, I am sometimes, um, I have these conversations with grad students at conferences and they say, what is that? You turned down a tenure track job? And I go, yeah, because the possibility is I could have been stuck there for the rest of my life and I was unwilling to make that choice. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and um, I, I find that to be uh, not just brave, but wise in the sense that you really are, this is a life, you know, and there's a way in which it can be um, encapsulated into your CV. And that's just a corner of what you're doing when you take a job, when you decide where you're going to end up. So uh, good for you for having the, the vision to be able to stick it out because it worked, right? Yeah, it worked. I got lucky. One of the things that you've done recently is collaborate on an edited volume that helps people to kind of, I think, think through those choices. Um, right. And, and I, I'm a firm believer in people making those decisions in a, in a kind of informed and conscious, thoughtful way. So tell me a little bit about the book and, and how it would help someone uh, understand those decisions if they're going into making that kind of stuff about their life. Okay, uh, the book is Teaching International Relations. It's by it, it's published by Edward Alger. It, it looks like this. <laughs> uh, my co-editors are James Scott and Brandy Jolliffe Scott here at TCU and also Jeff Lantis at the College of Worcester. And um, the really great thing about teaching is we're all unique in our own way as instructors. And what works for one person won't work for another. And what one person excels at, another person will never even think of. Mm. And so the amazing thing about culling the literature in pedagogy recently in, in IR and in political science more broadly is you start these articles by people about how they do facets of, of uh, the teaching enterprise. We came up with a whole bunch of different approaches to teaching international relations and people who had tried those and knew what worked and what didn't work. And mm -hmm. we tried to be as practical about those things in the individual uh, entries in this uh, edited volume as, as we could be. That's great. Um, so I, uh, the, the book just came out, so I, I haven't yeah. seen it yet. Um, what, do you have a chapter in there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the, I always get asked to write about teaching with case studies. Um, this is how I set up my uh, U.S. foreign policy making course. I have an entire course on just the process of U.S. foreign policy making and the politics of it. And so I get asked to, to do that. And, and I've published uh, uh, my own edited book of, of case studies on U.S. foreign policy that work with the course. So um, I've been invested in case-based teaching for a long time. And I know how it's supposed to be done. I can rarely do it that well. Um, and I, I'm not just saying I rarely do it that well. Um, it, it's hard to get the, the kind of investment on the part of the students that I'd like to get if I had a 12 person seminar in a small room uh, with a larger class of students. But I, I figured out an approach that seems to work pretty well, which is to sacrifice some of the class time 
to give students time to work in groups mm -hmm. and have them discuss either the entire case or uh, guided facets of the decision making. I'll, I'll give them an assignment. Okay, group one, you're going to talk about what was the occasion for decision in this matter. And, you know, group two, what was the consequences of the final decision? And group three, you know, who are the players or whatever. Um, but give them time in class to, to make them talk about it. And then when we convene as a group, Oh my gosh, the discussion is much more robust and, and enriching. It's, it really works a lot better. And so uh, give me an example of a case that you would throw to students. Well, um, gosh, um, Trump's um, Muslim ban on travel, that's in the newest edition of, the, of my book. Uh, so you know, he, he tried three times to keep certain immigrants from certain countries out of our country. And that produced, as you recall, an enormous controversy between those Americans who want and have always wanted to restrict immigration and those Americans who think all Muslims are terrorists. And then those Americans who think of the United States as a country built on immigrants. And that's part of our culture and what makes us exceptional if we are. Uh, so a, a case like that would be easy to do. Uh, cases like, you know, how to deal with Iran or North Korea on nuclear proliferation. In, in the most recent case, I've got immigration reform uh, as a case study, uh, not just about travel bans, but, but basic immigration reform and asylum seekers at the border and how is that a foreign policy matter and, and those sorts of things. And so I, I've tried to make my approach to case studies in the US foreign policy making course less about what I always thought of as international politics, trade, violence, stuff like that, and more about human security concerns, um, global pandemics, um, uh, humanitarian relief, you know, uh, other things as, as well as those other more traditional topics that a political realist might talk about, for example. Walk me through how, what they do when they get to class. Well, they, they've read the case and then they come to class and I make them talk about the case with their classmates. Uh, and then we reconvene and I start asking the basic questions. Why is this even a case? Why are we even talking about this? Well, that makes them talk about, you know, how was there an occasion for a decision by a US foreign policymaker? Who made that decision that it should be on the governmental agenda? You know, how did they advocate that? How did they set the narrative? Those sorts of concerns. Uh, and then we, we get into, well, how was the issue framed? Who's doing the framing? Um, who are the players? And I start asking those kinds of questions. Mm. Who took what stance? Why did they take those stances? Who influenced them? If, you, mm. if we can drill down that deep in the case. And then, you know, what were the options? What were the possible things that could be done uh, by U.S. policymakers in this matter? And then finally, why did they choose the one they chose and what were the outcomes of it? What's the long-term consequences? Not just the output of the decision, but the outcome of the event. Hmm. Um, if I had waited you know, another six months, we could have had you know, a case study on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, because that would have been a good one, hmm. um, which I'm talking about in another, another class right now. So uh, those are the kinds of things I want to walk through. And, and the key thing here I want them to get is the people making these decisions aren't any smarter than they are. They just know more or they know more of a certain narrow niche of expertise. And the question is, 
what side of the issue do they see? Do they see the big picture? Do they see their narrow niche of it? Um, do they communicate well? Um, is is the, the decision setting more open or closed? Uh, is there groupthink or polythink going on? Um, you know, basically understand that this is like almost every other organization they've been a part of as a student, except the stakes are higher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, and then to realize that there's, there's no secret sauce to how this is all done. It's people sitting around trying to argue for what they think is in the country's best interest, which in some cases might also be in their view in their best interest as well. You know, what I really like about this approach is, is the questions about what could have been done differently. Right. Yeah. Uh, because clearly the people sitting around the table are also thinking through scenarios. Right. But if you're a member of the public, you might just think that this was kind of a linear thing. And having the students substitute their judgment and their intuitions, their ideas about problem solving into the process empowers them in significant ways to think about how they might do that, not just in the case in this case, but in all the kinds of uh, decisions that they will end up making in their future. Well, I think that's right. Uh, when I talk about the consequentiality of the case, when I try to get to that, I, I say, okay, you know, how did this work out? Um, and if it didn't work out well, you know, then the obvious next question is, what could have been done differently? Did, did something wrong here? Can you pinpoint where this veered off track to have a more positive outcome? And to to, again, to try to drill down and identify those elements. One of the, the big concerns I've always had is I want my class, the one class they take from me, maybe, I want mm -hmm. that class to help them polish skills that are going to be critical for professional success, no matter what they do. And that's going to be critical thinking and analysis, asking that next question, being um, observant, about the factors involved in whatever you're dealing with, seeing the whole playing field, if you will, but also clarity in communication, whether it's oral communication or written communication. My students tell me they hate me editing their writing, but I do it. Again, I want them to get skills that will make them better equipped to deal with life as an adult and hopefully success in some chosen career. I, I love that. It's I love that you started with life first because it's also going to make them better parents and better members of the PTA and better members, citizens of their local community, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. I had a student once on, on student evaluations of teaching, some, some student who never spoke in class uh, and, and said the nicest thing. And it was, I hope in the future I'm as nice to everyone as you are. Okay. I'll take that. Yeah, for sure. I had sure. another student tell me one time, well, this didn't happen. He didn't tell it to me. My administrative assistant told me that a student came in and said, I need to talk to my political science professor. And she said, which one? And he says, I don't remember his name. She goes, well, can you describe him? And he goes, he's the happy guy. And she goes, oh, that's Dr. Carter. He's off the <laughs> Well, that's... Uh... I mean, I think that says something about the process that you went through to decide where to teach and and how to teach um, that they would be able to describe you that way. And everybody would know who that is, is a <laughs> yeah. sense is a sense that you're um, in, in a way 
making that you're making your choices into things that are personally satisfying and fulfilling. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm open with that about that with my students. I, I, I'll laugh out loud in class at things that I think are funny and, and um, uh, I'll joke with the students during class. And then I've said on numerous occasions before uh, that I, I tell my students in class, I hope you enjoy your future career as much as I'm enjoying mine. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason work has to be a drag. <laughs> well, and, and that often comes back. I, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I, I, and I try to exude that in my classes as well. Um, and, and it often comes back for me in this idea that I'm passionate, you know, that I'm passionate about what I'm doing. Um, and sometimes they attribute that to passionate about the topic matter, but I hope that they just see it as passionately involved in teaching as well. Yeah, I hope so too. Absolutely. So one of the things that is interesting about that is you, you run into, you know, you and I are both people who would benefit from just about every privilege that our society bestows upon us. Sure. Um, and so you can understand why somebody watching this who, who doesn't enjoy those privileges may look at, at and say, look, I have to be a little more careful. I have to be a little more protective of my authority than, um, than joking around with the students and you know, where that would be a little riskier both yes. in terms of success in, in the class, but also success at the institution. Yes. You know, I've had female colleagues who've said they've been bullied in class by their students. Mm. Um, they've had to go out of their way to demonstrate that they are the authority figure for that course or that they are competent to teach that course in ways that certainly I have never been challenged as a white male of a certain age and maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, never, never. When I was 26 and a college professor, I was never challenged about my competence to do this. And yet I have colleagues who have been. And it's really hard when you're passionate about your subject matter, you want to own it and you do, and you show that to your students, but then you're also opening up and revealing a part of yourself when you do it. And if that's different than what they think of as the person that should be in front of the class, mm-hmm. that's a steeper hill to climb. And I, I certainly appreciate it. Do you think that you're, um, that, that using cases and case study method in the class, do you think that has any impact on how your authority looks uh, to, to students? I don't think so. One of the other things I do with every class I teach, and I usually do it the first day of class in every course, is I tell them we all learn from each other, mm-hmm. that I don't know everything. I know a lot, but I don't know everything. And they're going to, there's going to, I say, there's going to come a time in this course where you have an, uh, an insight or some knowledge that's relevant to what we're talking about that I don't have or have not brought up. And I want you to share it. And we're mm-hmm. going to all learn from each other. And so you make it as collaborative and participatory as you can. But again, um, if I looked different than I do, by following those approaches, I might be opening myself up to, you know, well, you're just trying to find the easiest way to teach this course. You don't want to really lead us through it or, you know, something like that. And that would really be unfortunate. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, 
I really want to thank you, Ralph, for taking the time to, to talk to us and share this experience. I'm especially fascinated by the investment you've made into the case study method as a, as a way of helping to navigate not just the content, but also the skills that you talk about in terms of the students walking out with things that are applicable in lots of different situations and certainly benefit them regardless of what they ended up what they end up doing. Thanks, Ralph. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Hopefully see each other and hang out when we get to Nashville. Okay, sounds great. Thank you. The Teaching Curve podcast is made available in the International Studies Association Professional Resource Center under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative. You can send feedback or suggestions for future interviews to teachingcurve at isonet.org. And follow us on Twitter at teachingcurve. Consider joining us for ISA's next Innovative Pedagogy Conference, which will be held March 29, 2022, the day before the main ISA convention begins in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks again for joining us on The Teaching Curve. And remember, learn something every time you teach. <laughs>